This podcast contains graphic content and discusses themes of violence. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Kathleen Mangan met Gilberto Valle on the online dating site OkCupid in 2009. Their relationship solidified as they moved in together and adopted a dog. Kathleen, a teacher from Reno, Nevada, and Gil, a New York City police officer assigned to the 26th Precinct in Morningside Heights, Manhattan, welcomed a daughter together in 2012 before getting married later that same year. Months into their marriage, Gil started avoiding sex and spending long nights on their family computer. Kathleen could only assume he was cheating on her. After finding he was erasing his online search history, Kathleen installed spyware to see what her husband was hiding. She couldn't have been prepared for what she found, and an affair would have been the least of her problems. I'm Jen Hansen. You're listening to The Living. Born in Queens, New York in 1984 to Liz Valley and Gilberto Valley Sr., Gil describes his childhood as completely normal. Liz was emotionally supportive, while Gil Sr. was more distant and much more strict. But they separated at an early age, and Gil spent most of his upbringing with his mother. A self-described popular teenager, Gil played baseball in high school and made the honor roll before going on to earn a psychology degree and make the dean's list at the University of Maryland. Things took a gradual turn for the worst later in life when Gil noticed arousal from the image of a woman tied up on TV. He kept these fantasies to himself, knowing his growing interest in bondage and dominance would not sit well with others. Gil's life played out in a pretty ordinary fashion post-college graduation. Although his internal fantasies never ceased, he joined OkCupid, and in 2009 he met Kathleen Mangan, a 25-year-old teacher from Reno, Nevada. The two married in late 2012, nine months after their daughter was born. But it was when she became pregnant, she began to notice a shift in their relationship. His first words upon hearing of her pregnancy were, I can't do this before quickly shifting gears and calling her parents to tell them he would make right by her. Sex after the birth of their daughter never ended well. Gil would run into the bathroom, unable to climax, and eventually started avoiding her altogether. This resulted in Kathleen caring for their daughter almost entirely on her own. After work, Gil would come home and go straight online. Staying up late, often until 3 or 4 in the morning, he would fall asleep at the computer or on the couch. The summer after their wedding, Kathleen observed his online behavior as seemingly normal. ESPN, Major League Baseball, and a message board for NYPD officers were often the websites she saw him engaging with. It wasn't until one day that same summer when she noticed Gil had been erasing his search history. She also saw an email account, an email she wasn't aware of. So she tried logging in with the same password he used for everything. And it worked. 
It was then she found two images that Gil had saved. And although those images didn't load, she was able to see the URL they'd come from. Dark Fetish Network. She visited the website to get a better idea of what Gil was looking at. In a later interview, she told New York MAG reporter Robert Kolker, quote, It was porn, and it was disturbing. The girl on the front page was dead, end quote. Afraid of losing her husband, she decided to confront him about her findings. And although Gil was ashamed and worried at first, it felt like a breakthrough. And while their line of conversation opened again for the first time since the baby came along, they would both be forever changed. Unable to erase the images of tightly bound and suspended women from her mind, knowing these were the things that excited Gil, Kathleen feared there was more under the surface. She made the decision that September of 2012 to install spyware on their family computer. This spyware went far beyond recording searches and web history. It took screenshots every five minutes and recorded every keystroke. There was nothing Gil could hide. The next morning, upon review, Kathleen's stomach sank. There were multiple websites that unsettled her, such as Girls in a Bind and FetLife, short for Fetish Life. But it was the same website as before, Dark Fetish Network, that she found he frequented the most. It was here, in a chat room, under the username Girl Meet Hunter, that she learned just how far deep and dark his fantasies went. Google searches for how to make chloroform, how to prepare human meat, and how to cook a woman alive were accompanied by pictures he sent to other Dark Fetish Network users of women he knew including his wife. There were offers, cash offers, from these users to kidnap, torture, and eat these women if Gil could provide them to these other men. Gil claimed in these chats that his basement was rigged with a pulley system to hang women by, and that he had an oven big enough to fit a woman if he folded her in half. His basement, in all reality, was a laundry room shared by other tenants of the building. And his oven... That was a standard size. It appeared Gil was merely fantasizing. Or was he? According to Inside Edition, he stated he even had a list of all the tools he would need to carry out abductions, including a document titled Abducting and Cooking Kimberly, a blueprint. Kimberly was that of Kimberly Sauer, a college friend of Gil's who had lunch with he and Kathleen in July 2012 a lunch that was suspected to be surveillance for his sexually deviant plans. In messages to a named co-conspirator who went by the Dark Fetish Network screen name Moody Blues, Gil advised Moody Blues to, quote, get his alibi in early, referring to when he planned to abduct her. In another message to Moody Blues regarding Kimberly's kidnapping, Gil is quoted as saying, quote, I just enjoy the thought of making her suffer, end quote. Kathleen's reaction to this was to immediately send a screenshot to Kimberly over Facebook Messenger. Kimberly, unaware that Kathleen was serious, assumed her Facebook had been hacked and forwarded the message to Gil. Playing it off as a joke and leaning into the theory that Kathleen's Facebook had been hacked, Gil denied the claims. Perhaps the worst thing Kathleen found was a picture of herself that Gil sent to the men he was chatting with. She says to New York Mag, quote, I was going to be tied up by my feet and my throat slit, and they would have fun watching the blood gush out of me because I was young, and if she cries, don't listen to her. 
don't give her mercy. And Gil just said, it's okay, we'll just gag her, end quote. It was then Kathleen booked a flight back home to her parents' house and took the baby with her. And in October of 2012, after turning over what she found on Gil's computer to the FBI, he was arrested. The FBI began sorting through Gil's fetish emails to build a case against him, singling out those that seemingly planned and laid out kidnappings. This included ones where fees were negotiated for Gil to kidnap and provide women to his online co-conspirators. It was also found Gil used the police database to access addresses and personal information of the women he chatted about. Within Gil's repertoire of online chats, three co-conspirators that Gil chatted with most frequently were named by the FBI as Michael Van Heys, a 22-year-old New Jersey mechanic, someone from Pakistan using the screen name Ali Khan, and a man identified by the FBI as Dale Bollinger, who was the user Moody Blues. Van Heys and another man with whom Gil had not chatted with were both found guilty and convicted of conspiracy to commit acts of kidnap, rape, and torture. But more on that later. It was in a conversation with Van Heys that Gil was found bargaining prices to kidnap a woman who had previously worked with Kathleen. When asked for 5000 Van Heys tried to bargain down, to which Gil had responded, quote, I'm putting my neck on the line here. If something goes wrong somehow, I'm in deep shit. $5,000 then you need to make sure that she is not found. End quote. As well as also having said, quote, I am aspiring to be a professional, and that's business, end quote. But with all the emails, chats, and aspirations, the police nor the FBI could find anything within the valet home to suspect any of these plans were real, much less in motion. Gil would make plans to meet up with his co-conspirators and then make excuses when he missed the dates and times. In other chats, Van Heis would ask for personal information on the women Gil sent pictures of, such as addresses, and Gil would always say no. Park Dietz, famed forensic psychiatrist who has worked on hundreds of violent offender cases, the likes of which include Jeffrey Dahmer, the murder of John Benet Ramsey, son of Sam, various White House attacks, and many others, evaluated Gil. For the defense, the results of Gil's evaluation would be everything they could hope for. When interviewed for the documentary Thought Crimes, the case of the cannibal cop, Dietz says, quote, In my opinion, there is no reliable evidence to suggest that his erotic conversations could be reasonably construed as conspiratorial plans rather than conversations that were an end in themselves. End quote. He also later says that Gill's fantasies were, quote, simply as a means of coping with the fact that he was aroused by socially unacceptable images and fantasies. End quote. Gill's trial began in February of 2013, where he faced the possibility of being convicted on charges of conspiracy to commit kidnapping and illegally accessing the New York City Police Database, among others. After a month-long trial, jurors announced a guilty verdict, where life in prison was a possible sentence. However, after Gill had already spent nearly two years in prison, Judge Paul G. Gardeff of the Federal District Court overturned the conspiracy charge, asserting that Gill's fantasies were, quote, not sufficient to demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt that Valet entered into a genuine agreement to kidnap a woman or that he specifically intended to commit a kidnapping, end quote. Although the conviction remained for illegally accessing a federal law enforcement database, Gill was sentenced to time served and was released in 2014. 
So how do we distinguish the line between intent and conspiracy from fantasy? What separates intent from roleplay or make-believe? Some might suggest that it's the presence, or in this case, the absence, of an overt act. Lawyer Rashad Glass, a trusted legal source for this podcast, had some input on this. When asked about overt acts in this case, he advised, quote, It doesn't have to be an illegal act, and it doesn't have to be a major thing. Also adding, quote, One may be able to argue that his use of law enforcement resources to shadow the individuals could be an overt act, end quote. Another trusted legal source consulted for this episode is lawyer Tom Stone. Regarding Gil's Google searches, Tom says, The fact that he shut it down so much, to me this is a weak case, because remember to convict somebody, it needs to be beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Right. And um, to convict someone, he's got too much in his favor. He doesn't own any of the stuff. He shut people down all the time. Yeah, he did some weird, freaky things like create spreadsheets. And he did apparently solicit a kidnapping of a particular person, he said? Yep. And he was just going to deliver that person to whomever wanted the person? Yep. So that, that could be, like I said, a separate crime. Um, you're, you can't just go solicit criminal activities. It's just like you can't, you know, sell illegal drugs, right? In a conversation Tom and I had regarding how the jury would have convicted Valet, with the lack of evidence, or the weak evidence, as Tom calls it, he had to say this. It's, it's helpful if you think of an analogy that doesn't draw your attention. Because what this guy was into kind of emotionally overrides your system. And you're shocked and you want to punish him just because he's into that. But it's not a crime to be, there are no thought crimes, right? Right. It's not a crime to just be weird and fucked up. You, if you're into something, you know, it's not a crime. So, so try to analogize to something that's more normal and decide whether he would be convicted in those circumstances. Catherine Ramsland, Ph.D., a professor of forensic psychology, wrote an article for Psychology Today, which weighs the risk of Gilberto Valle acting on his fantasies. In the article titled Cannibal Cop, Fetish versus Danger, Dr. Ramsland explains the factors that are analyzed by threat assessment professionals when determining risk of offending. The three risk levels are classified as low, medium, and high. The levels of risk are associated with various types of threats. Inconsistent and vague threats are considered low risk, while high-risk threats typically have the following classifications. A time-consuming preoccupation with violence, clear loss of personal power, an absent or inconsistent support system, suspiciousness and paranoia, increased substance abuse, and collecting weapons or materials to pursue an assault, among others. The evidence collected and entered into Gill's trial showed none of these. In fact, Dr. Ramsland puts Gill at a medium risk, citing only the popularity he felt with the online fetish community who encouraged and challenged him. With this kind of dangerous mob mentality, it could be easy for someone like Gill, who feels validated within his online peers, to go over the edge. Dr. Julia Shaw, a German-Canadian psychologist who specializes in false memories and the criminal mind, 
believes it's important to embrace our darkest thoughts. Her belief is that being able to think through our deep, dark thoughts is adaptive and evolutionary, and it allows us to take a step back and separate ourselves from the physical act of whatever we're thinking about. She says of murder fantasies, quote, I think it's really easy to suffer in silence and not understand what those thoughts are, end quote. She also goes on to suggest that a fantasy could be the equivalent of internal venting, which could actually be helpful in preventing harm. So how do we handle thought crimes? Can you be prosecuted for your thoughts? In short, the answer is no, just like you can't be called a cannibal if you've never eaten anyone. Robert Kolker's piece in New York Mag makes an excellent point. He says, quote, When attempted crimes first became criminalized in the early 1900s, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes urged caution, asserting that for the defendant to be convicted, there must be dangerous proximity to success. End quote. But the question remains, how do we deal with members of our community who have violent and disturbing thoughts? And how do we know which ones will ultimately act on them? Like Gilberto Valle's co-conspirator Michael Van Heys. In 2014, Van Heys and his co-conspirator Christopher Ash, a former New York librarian, were convicted on conspiracy charges where they planned to murder members of Van Heys's family, some of whom were children. Ash received a separate charge for targeting a woman who turned out to be an undercover FBI agent. The difference between their case and Valet's are the physical overt acts committed between the two. The pair met up in Trenton, New Jersey to discuss their plans, driving to locations where they planned to dispose of the bodies. Ash, in his plans to victimize the undercover agent, acquired tools for his macabre plans, including a 20 million volt stun gun, whips, skewers, and gynecological tools, all of which was evidence presented at trial. As for Valet, his life post-trial is relatively normal, as normal as it can be after being dubbed the cannibal cop. As of now, Gil has written four books, one titled Raw Deal, an autobiography on his case. The other three are works of fiction, unsurprisingly of the horror genre. His Instagram profile depicts a normal guy who spends time at home with his dogs, drinks beer, and leans into his former persona by giving interviews to Crime Report and even making appearances at CrimeCon. Of his widely publicized past, Gill says he embraces it. He's in therapy, learning to balance his two worlds, and of the experience has said, quote, I used to be more apologetic. I used to say, I'm so sorry for doing this. But as a part of therapy, I've learned it's not like flicking off a switch, where all of a sudden this guy is going to say something to me and boom, everything goes away. That's not how it works. It's just like, I am who I am. I know I'm a good person. I know I would never hurt anybody. And And that is the case of Gilberto Valet, the cannibal cop. Thank you so much for tuning in to the first ever episode of The Living. If you enjoyed listening, please head to our page and subscribe. And if you're feeling extra generous, a rating and review would be also very appreciated. If you can't get enough of true crime with an emphasis on forensic psychology, please head to the show notes and check out the link for the Cocktail and a Crime live stream event, where I will bring you a brand new case. And my good friend Alexi from the Hammered Copper here in Utah, which is where I am, will serve up a delicious cocktail that will pair with the crime. 
If you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram at The Living Podcast or at my Facebook page, The Living Podcast. Feel free to send me a message with your thoughts on thought crimes and what you thought about Gil's overturned conviction. I'll be bringing you a brand new episode after the cocktail and crime live stream event, so stay tuned. I also just need to thank you all if you made it this far. I appreciate you so much. I am really not great with all this tech stuff. The recording and editing is not my strong suit, and I can't tell you how many times I almost gave up before getting here. So thank you. I appreciate you all, and I'm so happy that you're here. I can't wait to bring you a brand new episode, but in the meantime, there's one important thing to remember. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about.